G'day. Welcome aboard the Starship Zero G, science fiction, fantasy and historical radio for episode number 1463, entitled The Last Rob Jan. Well, for one week at least. Our co-host Megan McHugh will be doing next week's show. Our podcast turtle is Baby It's Cold Podside because we're looking at a number of things today. But first, Zero G would like to acknowledge the... Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, the traditional custodians of the land on which we operate today and pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend that respect to other Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. And following up from that, we'd like to play a track called Grand Ideas by Alice Skye. And damn it, the referendum was and is a grand idea, the subject of which... A portion of the Australian population did reject. And, you know, look, I know lots of people had so many different reasons for voting no. I'm pretty much on board with all the reasons for voting yes. I could see no logical reason myself for voting no. And, you know, one of the things that occurred to me was that, you know that there's going to be, like, fascists and racists voting no, and you may not be one of those yourself. But you stood up to be counted, didn't you? And that's something you might want to think about for next time. Because there will be a next time. Because we do trend towards being more civilised. I know it doesn't seem like it at the moment, with people slaughtering each other across the barricades in the Middle East. And, you know, I don't have anything to say about that just at the moment. I'm still processing all of that. But you know what? The idea of a voice was a grand idea. And let's give some voices here to voice for First Nations, First People in Australia. All right, we're not moving on. We're just kicking into a different gear. Zero G today. I was trying to find some things to be cheerful about and didn't get too many. But this one came up. In my feed today, the Doctor Who BBC iPlayer, the Beeb, has announced that to mark the 60th anniversary of the first broadcast of its iconic Doctor Who science fiction series, that it will be making available on its in-house streaming platform iPlayer as much of the beloved television series episodes as it's currently possible to do, which is to say everything that still exists, giving the junking of a selection of stories in tape format from the earlier days of the show. They did that to make room for new stuff, never having any thought that people might want to watch them again. Some of which, of course, have subsequently been recovered, restored and patched over sometimes with animated bridges supplied with original audio tracks that were separately preserved. Now, this constitutes a massive online archive of over 800 episodes and it includes the Paul McGann 1996 television movie. Couldn't have been easy getting the rights to that one. And a lot of the spin-off series, including the Sarah Jane Adventures, Torchwood and Class, plus the documentary series Doctor Who Confidential, and the last being further supplemented with another archive of documentary material, including interviews, radio programs, photographs, and so on. So it's a bit of a bonanza for Whovians. And a considerable amount of work has been put in to make the archives inclusive so that there are subtitles, audio descriptions, and sign language. 
Now, it's speculated at this stage that Disney, which is now in international partnership with the BBC over funding and producing Doctor Who, may also make this archive available on its platform, Disney+, Plus, which would be a great thing. Of course, all of the Whovians who've already got all of these episodes on disc or <laughs> they're going, oh, joy. And you know what? There's lots of things to be said for being able to access things online and also things to be said for having the hard copies and things to be said against both of them, this being a complicated world. I, of course, have all of the Doctor Who episodes. Uh, as our monitoring starship was out there, we managed to pick up all the television broadcasts and we recorded them on our own. Sorry, you can't have them. All right, now we've got a track here. Doctor Who is returning in 2023. And in the US it will air on BBC America. Uh, they also have um, episodes available on Max. And we will get them on Disney+. Plus. So, you know, these are the uh, <sighs> Catherine Tate and David Tennant reprising their characters from Doctor Who for a couple of specials. And then Shudi Gatwa replaces the Doctor. Becomes the, is it the 14th? I lose track of the numbers myself. But Murray Gold has also returned, a composer, as well as Russell T Davies, of course, the showrunner. And, um, yeah, they've got a new epic version of the title theme, and this is from the BBC Now orchestra i think it's called and um in this case it's played in cardiff which of course is uh, one of the production hubs of doctor who i did wonder why they didn't uh, do the rounds sort of like um, bbc wales and scotland and whatever but um i guess that uh, would have been a hard nut to sort of crack dragging the whole thing around everywhere it's just a vague idea that they might sort of tune it to the accent of the particular doctor. Like if there was a, a Scottish doctor, they'd go to Scotland or something. But I don't know. That's just dumb, a dumb idea from me. Anyway. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website, rrr.org.au. Moving along there. Oh, last week I was talking about a movie called Mad God by Phil Tippett. I had another look at that. I've been listening to some of the commentary by the creator, Phil Tippett, and also uh, Guillermo del Toro, who's doing the, um, the track there. And they were holding forth on something I hadn't really grokked or indeed passed on to you, which was the fact that the rather hellish world that the story was set in is actually a world that God has decided to punish, which now makes a lot of sense. It's an evil, horrible thing, of course, but it also makes sense in context of what I saw. So just an additional thing. You know, this is the thing about movies, motion pictures and so on. You can reconsider them over time, which uh, I think I've done with a lot of things. As other information comes to hand or I watch them again, that leads us nowhere. Or, to be precise, a film called Nowhere. Now, I did entitle today's show, or entitle it, uh, Baby, It's Cold, Pod Side. And this is an allusion to the Nowhere of the title. So what we've got here is a 2023 ocean survival thriller. 
that incorporates into its narrative something I always consider a worthy ambition, which is to restore identity to the otherwise frequently unidentified masses of refugees and asylum seekers, whether that be circumstantial or deliberate on the part of authorities or media. Anyway, I thought that Nowhere was offbeat and unusual enough to fit into Zero G's admittedly very broad brief. So there's a a pregnant woman, her name is uh, Mia, and her husband, Nico. They're desperately fleeing from a despotic regime that has already murdered their young daughter. Uh, Along with a small group of other refugees and asylum seekers, they pay smugglers to get them out of the country in shipping containers bound for Ireland by sea. The containers, rather pointedly, are painted in the livery of a freight company, which is called Nowhere, hence the title. I'm not really sure if that would sell for our company, but um, there it is. So it's directed by Albert Pinto, and uh, he's from Spain. Director and writer, done some other films uh, and television shows too. Money Heist in 2017 and Sky Roger in 2021. And there's some themes in these that uh, do kind of play over into this. One of them, Money Heist, is a series about um, an unusual group of robbers who get into uh, a heist-like situation from the title. And, you know, it's unusually told with uh, flashbacks and time jumps and an unreliable narrator and so on. I don't know how unusual that is, actually, in terms of being storytelling. Uh, and then, of course, there is the other f- the film that he did before this one, Sky Roger, which is about um, sex workers who are fleeing from their pimp in a club and they've managed to abscond with a fair lot of euros. And that also involves some action at sea. So I think the director was reasonably well prepared to do Nowhere. It's based on a story by Indiana Lister, not Indiana Jones. And the screenplay itself was penned by Ernest Riera and Miguel Ruz, Indiana Lister themselves, and Sian Winslow and Teresa Rosendoy. And that's a lot of people in the mix there, really. Okay, so as most directors and creators do in the film industry, they've pulled some people out of that mix and worked them into the production of this one. But not, I think, the lead actress, unless I have missed that somewhere in the credits. Uh, Anna Castillo plays Mia. A Spanish actress has been known for a soap opera or two and also a, a film called The Olive Tree in 2016. So she's from Barcelona and uh, has done a lot of things alongside being um, an actress. Oh, damn, I just discovered this. If I'd known before, I would have queued up a track somehow. But uh, singer and dancing as well, so done that sort of thing. And you can see some of that in the physicality of her performance. She's not afraid to go running around and working confined spaces and all sorts of things. Uh, the male lead, as it were, is uh, Tamar Novas playing Nico, a Spanish actor, and uh, has been in a few different things along the way, including uh, the um, movie The Sea Inside. So these are both quite well-known actors in Spain, and they bring what they bring to this, carrying lots of luggage as well. Literally luggage too, actually, because it is a movie about refugees. So this is what I call a bottle movie. It mostly takes place in a... 
shipping container adrift at sea. It looks like a hideously unpleasant shoot as the main character is often semi-immersed. There are some harrowing initial scenes I will alert you to uh, as the family flees from the fascist regime. I'm not really sure who it's supposed to be riffing off. Um, There are thugs in uniforms. um, They carry out massacres of civilians and so on. It could be any despotic regime, really. Uh, it's all the same to the to the refugees, really. Uh, the container contains some of the ingredients that our characters will need to survive. Uh, there is some cargo in it already, along with some of the other refugees' personal items, some of which will seem unhelpful to Mia, but uh, she does find one thing that is absolutely essential. <laughs> I won't tell you what that is. Uh, there are mobile phones involved as well because that's you know what you have to have to, so it won't be an, a total apocalypse. You must have a mobile phone. Uh, a bit hard to keep it functioning in um, in water, but you know there are workarounds. Uh, and and that's really the the clever part about this whole film. This is the reason for this film being the procedural, and also to give identity to one refugee. I don't know if it's, there's a particular story that could, this could riff off, but I'm sure. Things like this have happened, uh, just stands to reason, or unreason, really, when you think about it. Where these people, poor people are out there just trying to survive. The ship is travelling from somewhere in Europe, I think, to Ireland via the Atlantic, presumably, but that does not mean that it won't be adrift in the tropics, like dozens of sea survival stories before this one. You know, there are some things you're thinking, ah. Oh, that's very convenient, isn't it? Uh, would that really work? Wouldn't they just die, etc.? But, you know, this is about hope and human resilience and in, and invention as well as creativity. And I, and I like that. I like the procedure in this. Uh, of course, if it was Tony Stark, then he would have somehow managed to build a motor for the container and set off. And, you know, there's actually is. <laughs> that's a, that's a if fishes, wishes for, for fishes idea but you know there really is a kind of a uh, a feeling about this movie that sets it apart from some of the other ones I've seen I mean just that first rate performance from the lead actress uh, Anna Castillo uh, it's just a corker and she could probably use some cork to help her keep her afloat there is a little bit of uh, what I would call long coincidence in this and magic realism in a sense but you know I'll go with that because uh, this is the kind of movie that gets you on side from the word go and you're thinking, yeah, all right, I'm going to stick this out. I want to see what happens. And, well, you do. It is actually on Netflix, so you can check it out there. And also, um, obviously, there's a DVD floating around somewhere, but they probably haven't shipped it yet. It's probably still stuck out there at sea. <laughs> so it is called Nowhere and it's screening on Netflix. You know, there's a... A Japanese um, anime television series about a um, an apartment block with some teenagers in it that's lost at sea. Can't remember the name of that off the top of my head, but I'm sure it will come to me. Uh, anyway, okay, so you know if that's, you want that sort of thriller, then go for it. You can watch it in um, uh, in English with subtitles, or you can watch it in the native Spanish. All right, so let's have a track here, and I didn't have to think too much about it. I thought I'd go with The Last Refugee, something that we'd like to see 
one day happen, but um, I fear it will be with humanity for some time. We're always causing the mass migration of people. As a student of history, um, seen so much of this going on in the past and present and future, no doubt. This is by Roger Waters, and it's from an album, Is This the Life We Really Want? Hi, this is Michael Palin, and right now... You are lucky enough to be listening to 102.7 3 R FM. The track I did play was The Last Refugee by Roger Waters from the album Is This the Life We Really Want, the fourth solo album by Mr Waters, of course, co-founder of Pink Floyd. And when this was uh, laid down in 2017, Waters was really reflecting upon the whole tragedy of refugee deaths and, of course, other related themes. A quote here from the album. He said, The concerns I have with that central question, why are we killing the children, are still there. I'm still deeply concerned that we're killing children all over the world with hardly a second thought because we've become so insensitive to the idea of every time the curtain falls on some forgotten life. It's because we stood by silent and indifferent. It's normal. And unfortunately it has become normal. We have normalised the death of the innocent. A strong statement from Roger Waters and so was the album too. I hadn't realised when I played it that it had um, so much to do with the actual sea, that, story, that particular track, which entirely plugs into the movie which we're just looking at, Nowhere, about a pregnant woman at sea in a shipping container just trying to make a life for herself and her family. Now, actually, was a movie that... There, uh, it is there is a movie too, but I'm um, thinking more of the novel, uh, James White's The Watch Below, which is a science fiction story where a petrol tanker in World War II is torpedoed uh, and goes to the bottom, but it's not destroyed in terms of all of its compartments, and some of them are quite large, being empty oil tanks. Uh, It was on its way to pick up a cargo. And the passengers, because there were passengers on this, it being wartime, and there often are passengers on uh, commercial freighters as well sometimes they take a few along with them uh, and some of the crew and and so on um, managed to survive in this bottle environment um, for decades under the sea Uh, it's a quite amazing piece James White's the watch below and in some respects it reminds me a little bit of nowhere I haven't given you a zero g yeah nah maybe rating for that and I think we shall go with yeah uh, it does have some, some cliches in it and some long shot, long odds coincidences, but I'm okay with that. The performance of the main character carrying the thing literally on her shoulders uh, is so good that it, she just won me over in it. An odd one, I thought, anyway. Okay, now, this one you will know quite well. And I think I'll give you a track right up front to... Uh, lead you into it and it's why we called uh, today's episode um, 
well, we called it Entitled, and uh, we had a podcast turtle as well. It's because it's about four brave teenage mutant ninja turtles. And this is the TMNT theme, a synth wave mix from a group called AC83. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website, rrr.org.au. Yeah, Heroes in a Half Shell indeed. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle theme. Synthwave mix by AC83 as in 1983. Not as in an Air Canada flight that's over the ocean at the moment. I was just looking it up. Oh, no, that's not the right one. <laughs> so they do specialise in a lot of, of covers. Anyway, it's a pretty good one there, actually. Now, you may remember that tune from any of the innumerable TMNT television shows, various cartoons. This is one of those things. Uh, we recently covered the latest TMNT CGI animated movie and found it good stuff. And so I won't go too much into the backstory and origins of the Turtles because we've already done that very, very recently. Uh, But the reason why I'm talking about them today is because I have before me the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, The Last Ronin. And this is by Kevin Eastman and Peter Laird. It is a, a collected edition of some relatively recent comics. Well, more recent than the 80s origin of the TMNTs. And it is an important contribution to that large, large, long-running canon of Turtle comics, which can sometimes take a back seat to the animated and live-action movies and the toys and the video games and everything else. Um, I originally hooked up with the Turtles back in the 80s with the original comic books. That was quickly overtaken by all those animated shows and so on, some of which I've watched quite long runs of, and the various movies, which I think I've actually seen all of uh, over time. But, you know, this is um, a series that was created by by, uh, Kevin Eastman and Peter Laird back in the day, and I can remember being so fascinated by them. I was, uh, my turtle was, my guy was uh, Leonardo. And, you know, everyone had their own sort of turtle that they were interested in, or perhaps they were interested in um, April O'Neil or uh, Casey Jones, the sport themed hero, Vigilante. Uh, or maybe even the Shredder or um, uh, Baxter Stockman or, you know, Krang, the alien. or You know, there's so many things uh, faceted off it. And, uh, you know, it's just a show and a book and a series and everything that was so popular. They kept reissuing the action figure toys over the years. So it can actually be a little bit hard to tell if you've got an original 80s Ninja Turtle toy or a, a reboot. You know, one might look better than the other or something because... Age whittles at you over the years. Anyway, this is the collected version of a five-issue comic book series that they did. It's written by Kevin Eastman and Tom Waltz. Now, the Eastman name is one you will be familiar with from many, many different venues, apart from the Turtles, but mostly for that, I I should imagine. Um, But, um, you know, you may also know Eastman as uh, the... um, 
a publisher of uh, or editor of um, the heavy metal comic as well. A bit of acting, you know, it was quite common to uh, call upon Kevin Eastman to have a cameo uh, in uh, movies, including in uh, the TMNT first movie and also doing uh, a lot of different bits and pieces along the way. Um, uh, Fistful of Blood, the, the spaghetti western horror graphic novel uh, and, and so on. He was also the... Um, the husband of the late uh, Julie Strain as well, the uh, the B-movie queen actress, which is um, an interesting story all in itself. So we have uh, this book before us. It's also, and I will go a little bit into this, um, co-written by Tom Waltz, um, who was uh, uh, a former Marine, um, veteran of Desert, the Desert Storm campaign, uh, California National Guard MP as well, military policeman. Um, and he also is working with um, IDW Publishing, which is one of the many publishers who've taken on the TMNT uh, licence over the years. Uh, it's, uh, it's almost as if um, the, the thing had a life of its own outside of its creator's wishes sometimes. That's because it did. <laughs> so Tom also has worked on the Silent Hill series. You may know that, the you know, the video game tie-in to comic books um, and this is a story that is based upon an actual older story by Kevin Eastman and Peter Laird when they were working together. Uh, there was a parting of the ways between the two creators of the TMT, so it's now basically Kevin Eastman there by himself. But this story harks back to that. And this is really interesting because I haven't actually stayed with the TMNT comics over the years, the entire run. And my gosh, I'm thinking about since like the late 80s or whatever, um, how many different story arcs they must have run through in that. And yet, with that knowledge, and we've only dipping into it occasionally in, in now, I was able to read this book, The Last Ronin, cover to cover, and have no trouble at all understanding where it was coming from. Because it does actually, it's, it's less mutated from the originals because, so to speak, uh, it is oozing with that primal creation, uh, that, that era that, that uh, Eastman and Laird came up with originally. So it's kind of steeped in that. So I didn't have any problem at all um, with the continuity. There was, a, I think, maybe one character I thought, oh, I can see that they've introduced that later than when I was reading and I must have missed them along the way and not seen them anywhere. But that didn't matter at all. So very, very accessible to you. Um, now, that, that said, I can't say how it would stack up as a part of the ongoing continuity of TMNT. And they, to their credit, have also said, well, no, this is a, an alternate future. So, yeah, as I said, it's set in a dystopic New York City. Uh, it's, um, uh, it's a walled city and, you know, so it's not exactly a nice place. Uh, it's, well, it's... Um, ruler is one Oroku Hut. Uh, he is... Um, sorry, Hiroto. Oroku Hiroto, who is the son of... Uh, Kaoiki Hirotso, who was the daughter of the original villain, Shredder. So Oroko is uh, the fascist despot. He's keeping the oppressed population of New York safe, so he says, from the post-apocalyptic cursed earth behind the walls, shades of Judge Dredd. Um, Enter the last remaining Ninja Turtle. Now, I won't tell you which one it is. You know, we've got Leonardo, Michelangelo, Donatello, Raphael. 
Now, normally you can tell which one it is by the colour of their mask or their weapons or their attitude or whatever or their obsessions. But this one wears a mourning black mask and bears his brother's signature weapons as well as his own. And this is the conceit that forms the main story of The Last Ronin, that the other turtles have all fallen in battle over the years. And I know this is, you know, it's, it's kind of a spoof idea in the first place and the, the Ninja Turtles were sort of spun off um, quite literally from uh, a container of radioactive waste that fell off a truck and fell into the uh, the sewers. They've changed that origin along the way because that same radioactive waste canister went on to hit um, Matt Murdock in the head uh, and, you know, well, he became Daredevil. Um, so it was kind of like this is a, a little thing behind the scenes that happened. Well, they kind of you know moved away from that now, but it was always supposed to be kind of fun and 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 uh, intense at the same time. A really strange balance of that. And there is actually a story that I've I, I just uh, just re looked at this morning uh, from those um, '80s comic books, and it was a really good story. It was uh, one where Leonardo turtle is trying to get back to the uh, the turtle's lair and um, at the time that actually was uh, in an apartment sort of complex not underground and the story was what goes around comes around and it told of leo's dialogue largely dialogue free um, battle to get home pursued by the foot clan of ninjas and shredder at their at their their at their helm, um, while the other turtles and April O'Neil are back at their base, uh, basically setting up Christmas, you know, trimming the tree, cooking, you know, doing the cooking, trying to figure out which pizza to order. Can you get a turkey pizza? I don't know. Uh, anyway, and it's a really savage story told out in image after image of frightful mayhem. And it's um, it's quite a, a moving story because Leo just battles his poor little wits out as he tries to get home and, you know, nobody is there to help him. It's a strong story. And that's what I feel like this last Ronin has got going as well. And in that, it's um, it's a strong kind of follow-on from that. Of course, there are the Foot Clan involved in this, um, some th- synthetic futuristic robo-ninjas and also Baxter Stockman's uh, Mouser robots. He was a rogue inventor. Um, they've had several decades of inv- advancement as well. And Stockman provides tech support for the new Shredder in his feudal kingdom. Now, this last Ronan will have two allies from his past and several from the future, including a descendant from amongst his old extended family. All right, so let's have another track here. And uh, this one is, again, from um, AC 1983, or 83 as it's uh, shortened to. And this is called um, The Last Ronin. So you've got to think about one of the turtles. Alone, no longer has his brother or his mentor, a sensei, Splinter. And here he is out in the wilderness contemplating the attack upon Shredder and trying to close that feud between their respective clans. I'm Catherine Janeway, the captain of this ship. Can you hear me? Zero G is fun, as you were. Yeah. (laughs) 
you know, I had absolutely no idea that there was a, a grab from Jean-Luc Picard in that uh, little cross promo there. And I had planned to put the Janeway piece in there because I wanted to mention that uh, uh, Netflix has actually picked up the Star Trek Prodigy series that um, uh, Paramount Plus has uh, dropped and uh, continuing with it. So good news there for... Uh, Catherine Janeway fans there, as well as the uh, the Progeny series, Star Trek lives, <laughs> indeed. All right, so we just played a track there called The Last Ronin by AC 1983. And that is because we are looking at the Last Ronin collection of five Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle comics set in the future, in an alternative future, where one lone turtle pits himself against the might of the dictator, the despotic ruler, descended from the shredder in New York City, in a post-apocalyptic earth, which doesn't impact too much in terms of the internal uh, world of New York at this time. But there is actually a sequel to this, or a prequel actually, sorry, uh, called The Last Ronan, The Lost Years, which details our turtle's adventures as they cross the, uh, the broken earth. Um, probably not actually uh, far from the creator Kevin Eastman's early initiation into comic books. He was very fond of Jack Kirby's Commandy series about a lone human, well, sometimes lone, mostly, uh, we'll get into that, who was wandering a similarly post-apocalyptic world, only his world was populated by uh, talking and sentient animals. In this case, we've got a talking and sentient animal, basically a turtle, mutated though he may be, uh, wandering an earth populated by remnant humans. So that's kind of an interesting idea there in terms of the the contrast between that. And as I said, you can't really tell which turtle this is from the cover, which one of the four turtles has survived because he is, in memory of his fallen brothers, carrying all of the turtle weapons, uh, which actually makes for a hellacious... um, statue. I've seen one uh, being produced. It's by Kevin Eastman and Peter Laird. It's an IDW production. Um, The Peter Laird comes in as the uh, initial uh, person who helped co-create that idea back in the day, back in the 80s or 90s when they were originally writing the Turtles stories. Uh, Tom Waltz has um, helped update the uh, the story idea. And also Esau and Isaac Escorza are the um, artists for this one, a brother team, um, the Esau and Isaac, who, uh, amongst other things, known for work on the heavy metal magazine. And there's beautiful artwork in this, um, from the covers to uh, the layout of the city of New York, uh, very gritty in some respects. But also, I think they pay homage to the many different iterations of the turtle artwork over the years. In fact, there's some Eastman stuff in here that goes right back to the original black and white comic books, and that's very strongly reminiscent of that. And that's why I, as somebody who hasn't only really dipped into the turtle lore over the years, after an initial enthusiasm for it back in the 80s and 90s, uh, that's why this one resonates so strongly with me. Um, I do wonder if... um, uh, Tom Waltz, the, uh, the co-writer of this one, uh, with their military service background, influenced this story in, 
in some manner because there's a lot about post-turtle stress disorder or maybe it's uh, ninjutsu spirit magic. But the Ronin's obsession with the blood feuds between the clans means that he gets to talk to his fallen brothers. and He has to open all of that up and examine it when he's amongst his new friends and old um, old allies too. It's it's a it's a strong story in that respect. The, there is an emotional weight to this. A burden shared is one lessened, and but not immediately. And of course, there's the arc of the resistance against Shredder as well as the villains themselves who've got their own stories. Uh, we do find out what happened to each of the turtles and to Master Shredders and others in flashbacks, so they don't cheat us there. And uh, the tone of this is is optimistic, even though it's also. Uh, dreadfully bound up in vengeance and honour, as you'd expect. It's a lot for for Ninja Turtles. I don't call them the teenage ones now because clearly this last turtle has well and truly grown up um, in the horrible world that he now lives in, plus coming to terms with the loss of his whole family, basically. And finally in this, there's a legacy paid forwards which I, I think is actually going to pave the way for new turtle adventures. In fact, I know it is. It's the last run, and it's an IDW production uh, compiling the uh, comics of the same name, so he can get it all in one piece. Um, it has have some a little cover gallery uh, in the back, like many of these things do. And interestingly enough, it has a, a foreword by Robert Rodriguez, the great filmmaker. So... who has uh, ties with the turtles all his own. So, yeah, I I thoroughly recommend this. It's got quite a bit of reputation out there. Every bit of that reputation is entirely deserved. And this, there is another one of this, a prequel called The Last Ronin, um, The Lost Years. So, yeah, good little package there for Zero G today. Now, I think we will go out with a track whose title is The Man Who Sold the World. So that'll be our Bowie of the Week. But I think uh, this is the cover version by Lulu. <laughs> so I thought, yeah, well, you know, I want something... Um, actually, is, is it the Lulu one? Let me have a look. Because uh, I thought I considered Lulu's one and then I thought I think I moved on. I did, I did. Uh, or did I? No, no, this is the Lulu one. Uh, and it's from her album Heaven and Earth and the Stars. It is, of course, a, a cover of David Bowie's one, um, uh, which uh, was released in 1970. It's the title song from the album, his third album. And it's really kind of involved with a number of different things, as Bowie's want was. Uh, it's about um, sci-fi novella, um, you know, so it's also Robert Heinlein-ish there, um, uh, there's also um, the Brazilian satire, The Man Who Bought the World, flowing into it. Uh, and you may know it from the uh, the Kurt Cobain uh, Nirvana um, session that uh, is probably pushed it out quite further than what it was back in the day. Um, but I know it kind of because it's The Man Who Sold the World's title. It's the title of a, a TMNT comic in 1991. They actually did that. And, and I can remember reading that and going, oh, I must find out more about that. And it's, uh, it was issue number 19, in case you ever run across that somewhere. <laughs> I know, you know, the, the, the road to um, popular music is often a twisted one on Zero G, but hey, I wouldn't have it any other way. That's it for Zero G this week. Megan McHugh will be presenting the show next week. 
G'day, this is Rob Jan. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R Zero G, a weekly radio show exploring science fiction, fantasy, and historical. Zero G is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via our Facebook page or the Triple R website.